the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now, here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Uh, We'd like to welcome to the podcast Deanna Singh. Deanna is a highly respected thought leader who has spent almost 20 years researching, designing, and building asset-based solutions to complex social and business challenges. Today, she travels the world, inspiring and educating audiences through poignant storytelling. Deanna works tirelessly to help people find their purpose, which in turn helps their companies and organizations thrive. Uh, This is why brands like GE Healthcare, Harvard Ascension, um, Northwestern Mutual, Women Lead Global Change, Rockwell, Coles, and others, and many more, uh, ask her to engage with 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 their teams. Uh, Deanna helps her clients create more equitable, inclusive work environments and engages more authentically within the internal and external communities. Deanna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is so awesome to be here with you. I'm just glad to be able to have this conversation. Yeah, this is great. And, you know, once again, it was it was something where when I when when you, when we connected, uh, number one, you went to Fordham University. So go Rams, uh, which was great. <laughs> And, and, and so that was, that was very cool, but also the topic is very interesting, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and hitting upon those topics. Um, cause I, I'd love to kind of dive into that from a, not only a workplace perspective, but how that could be applicable to families and personal finance. So we'll kind of get into all that, but before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Absolutely. Well, um, it's, it's, there's a big portion of it was going to Fordham. Um, But I'm actually from the Midwest and went out to school on the East Coast. So I went to both undergrad and law school out East. And for me, that was a really exciting uh, thing for our family because I was the first in my family to actually go to college. And so being able to have that experience and, you know, that understanding. And I think what it did was it really helped me understand how important, um, you know, pushing outside of your comfort zone can be. And so my comfort zone was already pretty wide. I I come from a a very interesting background. My mother is African-American. My dad is Asian Indian. And so I spent a lot of my time, you know, between East and West, right? These two very different uh, cultures, but understood really closely that the more I could kind of push those boundaries and and go move from Wisconsin to the Bronx, for example, uh, the more I would be able to learn in life and really the more fun I would have. And I think a lot of that is what translates into my experience here in um, in the work that I do in inclusion, because it's what I try to bring to, it's what I try to bring to different organizations, like this idea, we can show up, we can push past our comfort zones, we can learn about each other, and then we can grow from that. That's very cool. And and before we jump into the topic, I, I would like to hear a little bit more about your Fordham experience because I we both went to Rose Hill, which is in the Bronx. And for people who don't know Fordham University, it's a beautiful campus within the gates. Um, you go outside the gates, you do have some great uh, places right nearby, walking distance, the Bronx Zoo and the Botanical Gardens. Um, but, you know, I remember going out, you know, uh, you know, hanging out with friends and, and at night you always want to go in groups and stuff like that. So, you know, when you get outside the gates, sometimes it's a little bit 
crazy. Uh, but I was wondering what your experience was at Fordham. So actually it was outside the gates that I had. Um, I loved being on Fordham's campus. I loved, you know, my professors and all the experiences that I had, but it was outside the gates that I really found my greatest joys. Um, so in the community outside of the gates, you, you explained, I always said Fordham was like a donut. It was sweet on the inside, but the outer rim was where, where it was really at. Um, and for me, like I lived, you talked about the botanical garden, you talked about the, um, the zoo, but my favorite parts were actually the neighborhoods that surrounded the community. So I had the joy of being able to start my first nonprofit organization um, in Fordham Bedford Children's Services, which was a place where people from the neighborhood go to get all kinds of different access to uh, different kinds of resources. And I started there as a student tutoring. Uh, then eventually I did a program where I worked with young girls. Then after I did that program, I did a Bronx and Beyond program where I had eight to 12 year olds and we went on four field trips a week for six weeks uh, throughout the summer. And I had less than $500 to do those trips. Um, and that was amazing, an amazing experience. And then the director there took a risk. And when I came back with this great idea about how we could try and use our privileges as students to really benefit um, the communities that were surrounding the university. I had this, I, I was working really closely with this other fantastic group at the time they were called Lyft, uh, excuse me, at the time they were called National Student Partnerships, now they're called Lyft. Uh, and he, he took a gamble on me. And now 20 plus years later, that nonprofit organization has helped over 100,000 people get out of poverty for good. So for me, actually, it was the neighborhood, I think that really uh, illuminated my experience. I didn't feel like I was alone. I didn't feel like I had to move in, in a group. I felt like I became part of the community and they embraced me so, so wonderfully that, um, yeah, I just, I had an amazing, amazing experience and particularly in the neighborhood surrounding the, the campus. Oh, that's so cool. Now I, yeah, I feel, I definitely didn't take advantage of, of, of exploring the neighborhoods more outside of like, um, you know, Arthur Avenue and, 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 and some of the other, you know, the restaurants. Yeah, and, I don't even know that I would have made it to be honest um, through Fordham if it wasn't for the families from the communities that were there because I was 16 when I went to school and they took me in just like their daughter. Um, I, you know, it's a largely Dominican population uh, outside of Fordham and everybody assumed that I was Dominican, but I wasn't, I, I fell so in love with the families that I got to meet, um, that I actually spent a considerable amount of time in the Dominican Republic and learned Spanish and everything. And so honestly, like, I don't even know that I would have made it through, um, school if it wasn't for the families who embraced me in that neighborhood. And it was just about showing up and, That's cool. and being willing to go outside my comfort zone, right. Or the comfort zone of, of, of what was happening at the, at the university setting. That's so cool. Um, yeah, and I think that kind of leads into, you know, tell us a little bit more about your book, Action Speak Louder, which I'm, I'm now that you, you, you've told that background, I, I'm curious how that, I mean, it sounds like that's, that's going to be rooted in the book a bit, right? All these, all these learnings from, you know, young age through college to your, where you are in your career now, which is outstanding, kind of, kind of synthesizes all these different pieces. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your book. Absolutely. So Action Speak Louder came out uh, mid-year 2022. And um, it really is an opportunity, I think, for organizations and for leaders who've heard all this stuff about diversity, equity, inclusion, and they've heard some of the theory, maybe they've read some books and stuff, but they don't really know what that means in their day-to-day -day practices. And so a lot of what I try to focus on in the book is how do we translate these theories and ideas and, you know, into practical these are ways that I could create a more inclusive workplace. 
So that was the goal of the book. I'm really proud to say that that is the feedback that I'm getting as that, you know, one of my, my favorite quotes so far has been, Dan, it's like a recipe book for inclusion, um, which, you know, I just, I, I really love. I was with somebody yesterday um, and there, a gentleman and he came out to me and he's like, you know, I've been in this work for uh, almost 70 years and I've gone to all kinds of different, you know, trainings and everything, but this is the first time I really felt like I had a practical guide, like what we do and how we do things differently. And that those are the kinds of compliments or that, you know, kind of feedback that makes me most excited. Yeah. And I think one of the other, I was looking through and, and doing some research. And one of the things I came across, which came up a number of times when I was reading about your book was tell us a little bit about the dinner table exercise that comes up as some people's favorite chapter. And I, I think we'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit of what that's all about. Yeah. So one of the things uh, that I try to do in the book is give some work to do, right? Like this is not just a, cause actions speak louder. So it's not just reading the book. There's some real exercises in it. And one of the exercises is centered around this idea of what happens at a dinner table. And so in the book, what we do is we talk about this concept of privilege and really the idea that no matter who you are or where you come from, everybody has privilege. And sometimes it's different in one situation versus another situation. And so uh, we talk about how you can take privilege and you can do different things with it, right? You could pretend like you don't have it, even though we all have it. Um, and that doesn't actually benefit anybody. You could be ashamed of privilege. And then that becomes a problem too, because you can't actually move forward with it. You can't do anything with it. But the best way to think about privilege is to think about privilege as an opportunity to be able to serve someone else. And so in the book, when we talk about this dinner table idea, we say you could have privilege and you can use it as porcelain, right? And you can view it as like, this is something that's really precious. I have to protect it, or I'm embarrassed by it, or I lock it away in a key and I don't use it. Or you can think about privilege like Thali. And Thali is like metal, um, silver, or metal, dinnerware, uh, it gets beaten up and it can, you know, it has all kinds of dents on it. It doesn't matter. You try and feed as many people as you can from Bali. Like it's meant to be used. So you could think about privilege in those two ways. I can think about it porcelain. I'm scared of it. I have to protect it. I only dust it out every once in a while. I whatever. Or you can think about it as Bali, which is how can I use it to serve? And, um, that's what we try to do is help people understand. Like, so what are some of those privileges? And first, for example, I can, um, with reasonable certainty, know what my day is going to look like every day, right? If, if I have that, that's that's kind of a privilege. I can um, I can feel really confident that I know how I'm going to get to work. I can feel confident that the language that I'm going to be given assignments in is going to be a language that is my first language, like things like that, right? And so when you think about when you think about it that way and you understand it, then you can say like, okay, well, what does that mean in these different situations? How can I use that um, to benefit others? Yeah. Thinking about those basic elements, I, that's very insightful. Like just the privilege of being able, like you said, to predict your work day or get to work or some of these things. I didn't realize that you kind of take it to that basic level, right? Where, like you said, everyone has this level of privilege and they may not even realize that they have it. Right. And, and to your point, using it in a, what, what they, a, a servant leadership, I've heard that term sometimes, Absolutely. you know, and that's really kind of what it is. So using it as to help others. Right. And, and to your point, everyone has some level, you know, has their privilege. Right. And, yes. and, and using it to help others and, and not 
I guess, dwelling. Is there negativity about privilege that comes out that people will think of themselves? Like I think you said a little bit earlier about what they're ashamed of it or like, what are some of those things that I... So I think when we hear the word privilege, especially, you know, there's words and words get um, manipulated into something and we kind of start to hear a thing. So when we hear privilege, oftentimes we hear it with white, white privilege, right? And I think that people have this connotation like, wait a minute, I don't have privilege. I have a really tough life. I, 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 you know, had to work really hard to get to where I'm at. Like, this is not because of privilege and because we've made it like a negative thing or we've made it like, if you have it, you're bad. If you don't have it, you're good. And we've moralized this idea of privilege. I think it actually puts us at a disservice instead of saying like, no, there are situations that like, for example, one of my privileges is that people invite me onto their podcast. I get a lot of microphones. That is a privilege that I have, right? And in understanding that and knowing that and not being ashamed of it and just understanding that I could have had a really hard life. I, I worked really hard to get here. I have, right? But that doesn't absolve me of the fact that I do have some other privileges. And so, um, so I don't know. So, so that's the idea is that, yes, absolutely. I think the way that privilege is often connotated in our larger context, it's negative. But when you think about it as, you know, this is just the reality of the context that I find myself in, but then there, and, and then in one moment, I might have a ton of privileges and in the next I might not have any, right? And just understanding that it does ebb and flow like that. And my understanding and recognition of it actually makes me more powerful and allows for me to do more, I think is, is, is awesome. So that's what we try to do is like, and it, this happens throughout the book with a lot of different concepts, but to say like, let's remove all the baggage and let's just talk about it. Let's, let's just talk about how it's, it's not that scary. And it's not something we have to, you know, whisper about, like, it's something we could just talk about and, and then we can work from there. Very cool. Yeah. And I think one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, organizations, right? You said earlier, like I know personally being part of many different companies over my career, um, I've had to take these courses, you know, we've had, we've been assigned, they were mandatory, take courses. But to your point, I don't know if they, if it ever, I don't think it truly resonates. And like some of the things I'm reading about your book is that it is resonating with people. It's that simple recipe guide to helping people understand DEI, right? And, and how that works, you know, for, and, and maybe this is where I want to ask a few things about DEI in terms of, you know, how can we approach diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, from a place of joy? So I, that's the only place I approach it from. Um, okay. and, and the reason for that is because when I talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what I'm really talking about is how do we human better? You know, what does it look like to just human better? And how could you not have joy um, when you're having that as the premise of what you get to do every day in your work? So when we're talking about like from a place of joy, I think it's important to understand like this is from a place of growth mindset. H how do I become better? How do I treat people better? We all know what it feels like to be included, right? We all know what it feels like to get that hug, for somebody to smile when they see us, for them to welcome us into a space, to pull a chair out and ask us to sit next to them. Like there's a really good feeling when people feel included. And we also know what it feels like to feel excluded. Right. We know what it feels like to come into a space and feel like people don't know, you know, or care that we're there or see us or want to hear us. And like if I'm choosing between those two and what kind of person I want to be, like the person who makes others feel included, or the one who makes others feel excluded, I'm picking included every time. 
Right. And being able to spread that joy, that like feeling of, yes, you belong here. And yes, I can make space for you. And yes, I see you the same way that you see me. Like, that's awesome. So it's not to say, and I want to be really clear about this. It's not to say that we don't have some really tragic histories, right? It's not to say that, that there isn't things that happened and continue to happen right now that are systemic that need to be addressed that are not happy. I'm saying that one of the things or the things I try to focus on is that where I center myself is not in like the, the hate. It's not in, um, you know, frustration in the sense that I, I feel like, oh, we can't ever do anything differently. No, I center myself in a place of joy that there's opportunities for us to be able to grow closer together and uh, to learn from one another. So it's not an either or for me. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a recognition of all these things that have happened that have led to this moment. And it's also with this hope that in this moment, we can make something different. Very cool. And I guess one of the questions I have, and and this is related to, I think DEI, I, I've seen it expressed very well, you know, or tried to be expressed in, 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 in big, big companies. Um, but from your opinion, at least my opinion as well, I'm guessing that it, it can be applied to small business, medium business, right? Uh, medium oh, sized absolutely. businesses, um, even family and, and, and personal, like how, how do you see those underpinnings kind of translate to kind of the smaller to medium sized businesses? I know at the enterprise level, they typically have big programs and at least what I've seen, and it's a very rigid process where you have smaller companies that may not have the funding or the means to, to do a formal strategy, how can they embrace DEI from, from that perspective with limited funds and limited staff? So I think there's a, a lot of resources that exist, but I'm going to answer your question in two parts. One, is it feasible and important for small businesses or, you know, uh, organizations to be having these conversations? It absolutely is because I don't care what sector you're in. Actually, it doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are for nearly let me even put a number out there. I would say for a 99.75%, that, that's not a statistic I can back up, but, <laughs> um, but if I had to guess, right, of businesses rely on human beings showing up, being consistent, trying to go towards the mission or trying to go towards the purpose of the organization and carrying things out to fruition. So if that's the case, right, if the number one thing that you are reliant on are people to be able to get your business, your service, your widget, your whatever out into the world, then understanding how people come together and how they can come together in a way that allows for them to thrive and be innovative and uh, want to keep coming back and all of those things, that's a business imperative for any size organization. Right. I mean, if your people aren't coming back and they're not coming back consistently or they don't like their job or they don't believe in the mission or they're not carrying it forward or they're not being innovative, you've got a real problem. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that is. Fact. Th yeah, I think you're 100 percent right. You hit it on the head with, you know, the, the common thread is you're bringing in humans. Right. I, I think that's that's amazing. And that kind of leads to another question of what are some of the roadblocks to diversity, equity, inclusion in some of these businesses, big or small? 
Yeah. So I'm going to answer uh, the second part of that first one, which was, you know, well, how do I afford it? Right. So, okay, great. I want to do this, but how do I afford it? So I think there's a couple of different things. Obviously there's resources like the book, you know, actually mm-hmm. speak louder that you can get to and that you can access. I, I also think that there's a ton. In fact, there might be an overwhelming amount of resources that are out there. So the other thing I would recommend is looking for something that allows for you to really um, think about your own leadership skills and how you're applying these things from a leadership lens. Um, one of the things that we do, for example, is we have an institute. We run it a couple of times a year, but it's an opportunity. It's cost effective, right? It's an opportunity for people to come and go through a, like about it's about 12 weeks and it's an hour or so a week where you can go in and you can actually do some of that self-reflection and some of that leadership growth that you need in order to be able to bring some of these ideas into your practice. So there's things like that. Another thing that we do that's really easy peasy is um, we have a three-day virtual summit. So it's a how to be an ally summit. Um, Again, incredibly affordable. Our next one is in, in March of 2023, but that those kinds of things, right, where you're infusing your leadership training and your leadership growth and development with those kinds of opportunities that, you know, have been vetted that, you know, people have gone through. I think that's how you get at this um, obstacle. And also, you know, how do I afford it um, when I'm thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion? But to your, your, your other question of what are some of the other roadblocks? I actually think the biggest one is fear. I think people are afraid that, um, you know, I'm going to say the wrong thing. Uh, my intentions are going to be misconstrued. I'm, I don't know enough. I haven't read enough about this or, you know, had enough experience or own personal experience with some of these topics. So I'm afraid of actually entering into the space. But what I will tell you is that one of the things we're seeing as a very clear trend is this is not necessarily something that um, you can pretend is not happening, right? So this idea that like, oh, I could just keep doing what I'm doing and not have any conversations or not like shore up my skills as it relates to inclusion is, um, I think, a recipe for disaster because right now, Organizations, again, of all sizes all over the world are understanding how critically important this is into their ability to be successful as institutions. And so, you know, I hear from people, um, you know, all of the time, things like, yeah, it's a huge liability to me. If my leaders don't understand inclusion and they don't know how to bring their teams along and they don't, they don't value it, like that's a liability for me. And they, you know, people like that are not going to move in my organization because it's just too important for us to be able to get this right and to continuously work on this. So I think from a career perspective, it's not good, right? I think from a Mm. business perspective, it's not good because you're not going to be able to recruit people in. So again, really, no matter where you are, um, I think fear is the biggest component, but I think the fear of not doing anything or the fear of not getting the skills should be scarier, uh, scarier to people. Yeah, that's interesting. I could see how people might shy away from talking about it. They, they might fear that they'll say the wrong thing. Right? You might hear that a thousand times a year, right? Like <laughs> if you ask people, I can see how that happens. And, and I think that from, from, from that perspective, I, I could see how people can kind of, kind of fall back and just say, okay, we'll just kind of put it in the corner and mm-hmm. not do anything with it. But to your point, getting out ahead of it, which I think is important. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, which is, is, is very neat is around why should companies look at a cultural ad rather than a cultural fit? Because I keep hearing that over the years I've been 
interviewing and various jobs and stuff. Cultural fit is something that I would hear a lot, right? Over the decades, I'll, I'll say decades, yes, decades in, in my career. But I, I don't think I've heard cultural ad, right? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that concept uh, rather than the cultural fit and maybe talk about the difference between the two. Sure. So I think what's really interesting is we will often um, spend a lot of time and money and resources recruiting people into our organization because we want them to bring an innovative or new perspective or uh, something with them. And we'll go through that whole process. We'll find someone really great. We'll all get so excited about bringing in this new person into our team. And then we will put them into a series of onboarding that tells them essentially in every way possible, please do everything and conform to the way that we do things. So all that innovation that we, all that, you know, amazing stuff that we got so excited about, you know, you bringing during the interview process, could you please put that into a suitcase and leave it at the front door? Because uh, what we'd rather you do is get indoctrinated to everything that we do and the way we do it and how we've always done it. Um, and that's what we do. And I, you, we do it in every organization, again, every sector, all around the world. And that's culture fit. So how quickly can you assimilate to what we are already doing? That does not breed uh, the kinds of transformative change that we're looking for inside of our organizations. And it really does stifle the growth of the individuals that we're bringing in. And so what we try to focus on is what is this idea of culture add? So how instead of spending all that onboarding time, you know, using it as this is the way we've always done it, this is the way you have to do it, this is the way it must be done, right? Instead of doing that, we said, so how have you seen this done differently? You know, what about our process could be improved? Have you ever seen, you know, anything or learned something someplace else? Or how would you change this? Um, and that is culture ad, right? So instead of kind of taking and beating all the innovation out of you, instead of like welcoming it, no, come on, bring it. Let me, let me see what that looks like. And when people make that mind shift, right? Like, um, and I grew up the same thing, like hearing people all the time, culture fit, culture fit, culture fit. I have many, many, many interview documents and things that I even put together right in my career that were about culture fit. But the minute I made that shift in my mind of, no, I'm actually not looking for somebody to, I'm looking for somebody who can make things better, <laughs> who has a different perspective. Um, it really changed kind of the dynamic of what the teams look like that I've put together. And I, it's, it's been phenomenal to see and be a part of. It is a question that pops into my head. It's fascinating because um, all the things you said is what you want out of a new employee or a new, a new team member, right? Mm -hmm. Or a new person that you're working with, new colleague, right? Have you seen this done differently? You know, I love that thought process. Is there a way to tie or can, can culture add and culture fit coexist? And if so, what's the best way to facilitate that, where you have the best of both worlds, where we need somebody to have that culture fit, I guess, but also bring in that those new ideas and those new perspectives? How, how do we get people, more, you know, how, how do you, how can you do one with the other and not stifle one or the other? Well, I, I do think you have to have some culture fit in the sense that you have to have people who believe in the mission of your organization, right? Who believe in the vision of where you're headed. And so that's important. I, you know, I tell people all the time, like our focus is in building bridges and our focus is on shifting power to marginalized communities. That's what we do as a company. If I have to convince you of that, then we're, we're probably not a good fit, right? Like that's, so, so I think that at its core um, is still an appropriate place to be talking about fit. Like you have to believe in this mission and but how we 
get there? So where we're going, we have to agree on. That's the fit part. But how we get there? No, we don't have to agree on that. As a matter of fact, I, I don't need us to agree on that. I need us at some, you know, there'll be junctures when we're about to make a move or make a decision or do whatever, where we have to come to an agreement that this is going to be our pathway forward. But if you have different ways of how we get there, that I'm okay with. So I think that's how you get both of them, right? The, the first part, you get the fit by making sure that you constrict that fit kind of conversation to mission vision alignment. I think the culture add is when you're open to the how. How do we do it? What does that look like? Very cool. Yeah, I, I think the thing that popped into my head was one, one of the principles where I work, we talk about disagree and commit. So, mm -hmm. you know, getting consensus and working through ideas, but also being able to work with others to to figure out something, even if your idea is not the idea that is going to be going, you know, that you're going to go with, we use this concept of disagree and commit where at some point, everyone around the table, when you, this sparked, when you said the word decision, at some points, a decision has to be made and you're going to have yes. these different pieces coming in from a cultural ad perspective and then combining that with the cultural fit and trying to think about, okay, we're going to go this route. So to your point, culture fit, everyone get behind this idea and move forward. And, and that kind of leads to another question around how do you ensure that t in getting down to that lower level, uh, how do you ensure in team meetings to include diverse opinions and contributions? How do you make sure those come to light? I think I've been part of many meetings where you get certain people in the room, certain senior people, especially senior versus junior people, if that's the right terminology, uh, where um, they're afraid to speak up. Right. Because you don't and you don't cultivate those diverse opinions and contributions and healthy debate. That's the word. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. How do you ensure team meetings that that you include those diverse opinions and contributions to get to those to get to that innovation and that transformation, as you said? So I think you have to really think about your process and you have to think about what you're doing that would allow for people uh, to show up and bring their ideas to the table. So there's lots of different, you know, techniques that you can use, but here, here's a couple of examples. Uh, one of them, and it's pretty simple, but it's surprising how often this is not done, is sharing the agenda beforehand. Um, you know, too often what leaders will do is they'll show up. They're the only ones who know what's going to happen in the meeting, what's being decided. They ask a question. Does everybody agree with this? Right. And in that moment, everyone's supposed to do all the work that the leader has done to get to that point and also share an opinion. And that could be a lot for people. So just a simple thing is sharing the agenda. And by sharing the agenda, it's not just sharing, hey, this is what we're going to talk about, but even sharing the ability to form the agenda. So here, you know, here's where our shared doc is. Here's where you can all contribute whatever ideas you might have. And uh, we're going to, so that we know what, what needs to be on the agenda or what questions need to be brought forth. So I think that sharing the, the responsibility of who gets to put the agenda together, but also just what is going to be talked about ahead of time are, is a really important technique. I think another thing that makes meetings more um, conducive to bringing other voices in is setting up some habits and some patterns that really do encourage other people to share or to talk. So can you, they submit questions, can people submit questions ahead of time? Uh, do you change who gets to lead the meetings every time you come into the meeting? Do you make it a point that if you are the leader, you never run the meeting? Um, you're always just a participant in it. Like things like that, that again, are simple and can be 
incredibly fun, right? Can add a, a fun dynamic to the conversation, but are part of your process so that your process doesn't have to be one that only highlights or only elevates a certain group of people when they come into the space. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I recently heard uh, someone talk about a meeting they were in with a very senior leader and the person started the meeting off saying, at the end of this meeting, the decision can't be is because I said so. Yeah. Right. And, and that was very, that was very interesting. And, and my understanding was that leader elaborated on other people as well within the organization. So I thought that was very telling. It kind of ties to, to this piece. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the um, retention whether you're in a big company, small company, um, why, you know, why organizations that are most inclusive have the best retention rates? Well, I think that's an easy question to answer. Do you like to go to places where you're un unhappy? Absolutely not. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you are working in a place where you can show up, you feel like you're valued, you feel like your voice matters, you feel like you can do your best work, you're encouraged, you're given the space to be able to thrive, then you're going to keep showing up. If the opposite is true, you are going to be searching, right, for other options and looking for other places to go. So I think that that's... Um, you know, you, you can look at all the research, you can look at all the data, you can look at all the statistics, but I think it's a pretty easy one to come to, just a realization if you just think about your own, you know, the way that you make your own decisions. Do I go to places where I feel like I'm being battered down or do I go to places where I feel like I'm being lifted up? Very cool. Yeah, and I think the other part of that, so we're talked about retaining uh, employees, but what about, what are some recruiting strategies for inclusivity to, to make sure that you're you're recruiting in the right way and, and bringing in people um, that, that want to stay and, and that are, that, you know, so that, that's kind of my next question on that is how do you, you know, what are some of those recruiting strategies for inclusivity? So a lot of things that we do in all of our processes, not just recruiting retention, any, any of the things that we do, performance reviews, um, one of the biggest things to do is actually to take a look at what you're, what you are doing. Like, just do a little bit of an assessment, an audit, if you will, of what is currently happening. Because one of the things that we find when we're helping organizations with recruitment and recruitment strategies is that many of them have not taken that hard look at what they are doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it. So for example, we will have organizations who for the last 20 years have only put ads in the same place. That's it. Right. And they have not looked at any other places. And so they're like, well, you know, we keep recruiting people who only come from these demographics. And we're like, well, that's interesting. Let's take a look at where you've been putting ads. And they're like, well, we put them here. Well, why are you putting them? Because that's what we did last year. And that's what we did the year before that. That's what we did the year before that. And then you ask the question, well, you know, if you took a hundred dollars and put the ad in maybe two other places, what, what do you think would happen to your candidate pool? We hadn't even thought about that, right? We Because ha we haven't audited what we're currently doing. And so I think that's the first thing. It's just like a, a clear audit of what our current practice is. Then I think the second question is to ask, okay, well, if we were looking at this, what would allow for us to diversify our experiences even a little bit more, right? So what would allow for us to be able to look at new places or bring in new people or think about this in a little bit different structure? So... The second question is then to ask your question, to ask the question after you audit it, how could I infuse um, some and expand what I'm already doing to make it much more inclusive? 
Very cool. Yeah. And, and, and sorry for the, I think the phone ring, that's how I call authenticity. If you had heard the phone <laughs> ringing, uh, that that's sometimes that I, we joke about that on the podcast where you'll hear sometimes garage doors opening, you'll hear, you know, so those are not effects. Those are real life taking place as, as, as you, you know, as well, Deanna, with your family, my family, you always have these kind of things that are happening around just so we kind of leave <laughs> those elements in. And that's why I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. And maybe how do you, how can you apply the DEI strategy? How can it be applied to family? And I'd be remiss in not asking this to like personal finance, right? Cause that's, kind of the theme of financial dads is talking about family and personal finance. Is there a way to kind of stitch DEI in, and strategies around that into the family? Absolutely. So I have uh, two children. My husband and I have been married for 18 years now. Um, and one of the things that I think we really value as a family is just being able to uh, infuse these conversations into what we do and how we make decisions. So one of the things that we do with our children is we really try and encourage them to help us be more inclusive in our thinking, right? So we say to them, oh yeah, we, we do Friday night movies. That's a big thing in our family, we, especially during COVID, right? Like we all look forward to Friday night movie time. We all get cuddled up and popcorn and, and the whole nine yards. And one of the, the challenges that we had was how do we look at and what are some movies that we could watch that would give us an opportunity to hear different voices, right? How do we challenge ourselves to hear from different perspectives or different life situations uh, than ones that we might be aware of? And so just even offering that question gave us the opportunity to really see things and, and experience things that I think we might not have otherwise have done. Right. So it's fun. Like, okay, this week, let's find a movie from a, a different cultural background. This move this week, let's find a movie from a different place in the world. And like, let's read the, you know, subtitles. Let's look at what's the greatest dancer in this, you know, just things like that. And those challenges were really infused in the way that we, that we operate as a family. And then from a personal finance standpoint, I also think that we really challenged ourselves and we continue to challenge ourselves to say, where are we spending our dollars? And are we being really thoughtful about where we're spending our dollars? So are we spending our dollars at companies that value inclusion? Are we spending our dollars in companies that are supporting different communities? And how are they supporting different communities? Are we supporting different communities, right? Are, are we going to the same place every week to get that takeout or get that food or to get what, or to go, you know, buy clothes or do, or are we trying to go into different parts and in different parts of our community um, and spending our dollars there? And that um, conversation has, again, led to many different adventures for us as a family, but I think it also allows for the children to see in a very real way, the impact of where their dollar is and where their dollar is going. Yeah, that's very interesting because one of the things that we've done, I would say in the last couple of years, as especially as the kids have grown a bit, they used to be more finicky eaters, but food is a great oh, yeah. cultural tie, right? So we, we've tried to do that with our kids and, you know, and it's not just the food, but everything around it, right? Especially if you're going to a restaurant, right? Whether it's an Indian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant or um, yeah, whatever that is to, to kind of not only eat the different foods, but also embrace some of these other cultures, right? So I, I'm guessing some of that kind of ties to that, but that also was kind of triggered by the talk that you said, you know, making sure your dollars are going to the, to the right places. Do you, and then this is off topic a little bit, but you see food as that cultural tie as well. Do, do you see that oh, same yeah. thing? Absolutely. Food, clothes, art, right? We uh, make it a point to try and go to different things and experience different things where we travel, how we travel, when we travel, where we stay, when we travel, 
all of those things are decisions. We're making all these micro decisions every day, and we can use those decisions as a way to influence our our um, the way the world works. Right? We could that that is going back to our very first question or one of our first questions around privileges. I have the privilege of being able to make a lot of different decisions as it relates to how I spend my money, how I make my money. And in those decisions is infused um, my values, right? And I value being able to see people from all over the world thrive. And so as a result of that, I'm going to make decisions that support that value and support. And that's a value that our family holds too. So again, I have the privilege of being able to decide what grocery stores I'm going to go to, of being able to decide where we're, what movies we're going to watch, of being able to decide... So why not? Why why not use those as an opportunity to help my children see that the world is big and beautiful? Yeah. And extending one last question for you uh, on this topic. So what, explain and how do you teach your children? You're, you're teaching their children through some of these mechanisms we just talked about. But how could they be more? How could they be inclusive with their friends and classmates? Right. So I, I, how does that I, I'm guessing that's the next natural step because we were talking about inside the home and and some of those pieces. But how how do we how do we teach our kids to bring that forward and pay it forward or, or, or have that same thought process with their friends and classmates? So I'm not sure if you're, if you know, or your listeners know, Paul, but I actually work really closely with American Girl and they asked me to write a book for them. So I, I wrote a book called The Girl's Guide to Race and Inclusion. And one of the things I get to do, it's one of the, my favorite things about my work is I get to spend a lot of time with young people and with educators and with families, just talking about what does it look like to create more inclusive environments? And there's two things I'll say here. One, I think there's a lot we have to learn from children, right? We, we talk about this all the time, but children actually kind of innately want to and exercise being able to connect with other people. They're like, oh, you're, you're wearing a pair of shoes. I'm wearing a pair of shoes. Oh, you like to go on the slide. I like to go on the slide. Let's be best friends, you know, like let's go. And somewhere along the way, we kind of change that. We, we, we lose that. We, we start to replace some of that willingness to meet other people and to exchange with them with fear. And so I think actually we have a lot to learn from our children. So I wouldn't just say this is a one-way street. I think this is a two-way street. Um, but I also think that when you're thinking about, okay, well, what are some of the things that I can do? I think part of it is showing your work. And we use that phrase a lot. My husband and I, like, instead of us just coming to a decision, okay, we landed on this movie. Uh, we ended up at this restaurant. We're at this store. We're making this trip. We're doing whatever. Instead of just telling the children, like, this is where we made the decision. This is what the decision is. We try to show our work hey, you know, one of the things that's really important to us as a family is making sure that we are diversifying our experiences. So tonight we were thinking about going to a place with food that none of us have ever tried before. And the reason why we're thinking about doing that is because we think it's important for us to be able to continue to step outside of our comfort zone and to like learn about different cultures. So we're going to go have uh, these foods. Let's look at the menu. Okay, it's actually not written in English. So let's figure out like, what are some of the things that are on here and how does this get made? Like, how does actually somebody go about doing it? Why is this an important cultural dish? Like, where where does it come from? And how can, let's listen, and right, on one of those voice repeater things, like, how do we actually say it the, the way that somebody who's native uh, to this language, how would they say it? So all of a sudden, like, going to dinner becomes an educational experience for us, and I'm showing my work. I'm not just telling you what the decision is. I'm actually bringing you into the thought process. Very cool, very cool. Well, I think with that, we'll wrap up 
the podcast. I could go another hour easily with you, <laughs> and I, I appreciate your time. And and some of the things I like to talk about is kind of go into a little bit of a summary recap. You know, so sharing your work, I think that's something that's amazing. I want to try to use that with my kids a bit more um, and, and start doing that. Um, the meeting strategies, kind of talking about rotation of leadership and le who's leading meetings, making sure you have a solid agenda. I think it's something that I've heard over the years, but it's resonating again, right? That's something that I try to do myself is making sure I have a strong agenda going into any meeting to be frugal with people's time. And then, um, you know, I think the dinner table conversation, that was a great piece. So thank you for, for doing the podcast. And I want to get, let you have the last word with any final thoughts and plugs, and then we'll kind of close the show out. Wonderful. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I would just say that if you're interested in this work and you're trying to infuse it in your family or in your work or in your community space, just any of the leadership roles that you have, um, that you go ahead and visit us, right? We're at upliftingimpact.com. We have a number of resources there that are free. We have resources that will allow you to push that leadership um, a little bit further. And another place that's really great to connect with us is actually on LinkedIn. So you can just find me at Deanna Singh. We're constantly trying to learn from others and also trying to find ways to serve. So it would be such a treat um, to be able to continue the conversation on one of those platforms, the website or LinkedIn. Well, very cool. Well, Deanna, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to our next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.